time he's introduced me in my adult life, and uh, so far nothing embarrassing to me. And I think the statute of limitations for anything I did embarrassing to them while they were youngsters is about to run out. Isn't it about eight years? I think that'll be good. But uh, I am so glad to be here. We're both happy to be back in Montgomery. Uh, We spent some great years here as I was preaching for the Panama Street congregation. See many of my friends here, folks I've known for a number of years and new friends that we've made since then. So it's always good to, to come back and to reminisce and to enjoy the the uh, memories of old friends, especially Christian friends. So tonight, my task in the next about 30 to 35 minutes is to discuss the topic of Jesus, the Messiah. Who is Jesus, the Messiah? And I appreciate the elders allowing me to come for the invitation I received and for their uh, permitting me to speak uh, as the oracles of God. It's always a privilege to do such. And it's great to be on a topic such as this, to uh, seek the Word of God, seek out the Word of God, to consider what God has to say about this very crucial matter about Jesus. And so when we talk about the word Messiah, we find that the term used as it's translated in the Old Testament is used 39 times. Most frequently, it is translated anointed one, although in Daniel chapter 9, 25 and 26, It is a specific prophecy of the Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ. Most frequently, again, translated anointed, it is used in the Old Testament in reference to the priests of Israel, sometimes to kings of Israel. King David is singled out and referred to as the anointed one. And then even Persian King Cyrus was singled out in Isaiah 45 verse 1 as being the anointed one. So there is a common usage of the term in the Old Testament, and yet as we'll see, there is a distinctive usage of the term as well. In the New Testament, the word that is translated uh, is most commonly translated as Christ. That term is used 559 times in the New Testament. And I say it's primarily used in reference to Christ because there is a reference to false Christs, and there are other usages of it, but primarily it's talking about Jesus. And the most interesting thing about it is that sometimes you have the term preceded by the definite article, sometimes not preceded by the definite article. So it could be the Christ or it could just be Christ. But what stands out to me about the usage of the term, Greek term Christos, is the fact that it's not so much used as an appellative or as a name as it is a descriptive term. So think about that for just a moment. That it's not just, oh, here's Jesus and here's his last name, Christ. It is a description of who he is. He is, was, and is the anointed one, the one chosen of the Father, sent for a specific purpose, which purpose we'll discuss uh, in some extent here in just a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the coming of the Messiah. The, The prospect of Messiah, the promise of a Messiah, was something that was greatly anticipated by and expected by the Jews for several centuries. If you go with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at something that Gamaliel said after he and other Jewish leaders had examined uh, the apostles in Acts chapter 5. And I appreciate you turning your scriptures, turning your Bibles with me. I know some of you have electronic devices. 
We are going to spend a lot of time in the Word this evening. But let's look and see in Acts chapter 5, 36 and 37. After Peter and the other apostles had been dismissed, the Jewish council was discussing what should we do about these men. And Gamaliel, the wise teacher, says in verse 36 and verse 37, actually go to verse 35, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. And I'm reading from King James Version. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So we can see that during, and he's referencing the intertestamental period, we can see that during that period of time, there were those who rose up and claimed that they were uh, the ones you should follow. They were the anointed ones. And Gamaliel is specifically referencing a couple of those men, Judas and Thutis. They were trying to force God's hand, in other words. They knew a Messiah was going to come. They knew a deliverer was coming. They knew an anointed one was in God's plan. And they decided that, well, he hasn't come by now. I guess it's time for some of us to step up and just go ahead and take that mantle upon ourselves. Another reference we have is we see the anticipation that existed, especially when we come into the times uh, just before Jesus came in the flesh. Remember when, when John the Immerser came? And of course, he was the forerunner of Jesus. And we find the Bible says in Luke 3 and verse 15 that there were those who were asking him, if he was the Christ. And the reason they were asking him is because of his powerful teaching and they were impressed with that and the distinctive manner in which he conducted himself. So they thought because he was different that surely this must be the Messiah. But John denied that in John 1, 19 through 21. In fact, in Luke 3, 16 and following, he made it very clear that the one who was coming, he was not even worthy to, to unloose his sandals. And then in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he said of Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I'd like you to look with me in John chapter 1. I think this is about as clear a, an illustration of how, great, how greatly the first century Jews were looking for the Messiah. In John chapter 1, we have one of the most exciting chapters in all of the Bible. Of course, we know the Bible was not originally separated out into chapters and into verses, except, of course, for the Psalms being separated out into distinctive Psalms and verses. But as chapters go, John chapter 1 is one of the most exciting ones for this reason. This is as John has been preparing the way for the Messiah to come, and now the Messiah is beginning to speak and John's disciples are starting to go away from him and going toward the Messiah. And again, John in his great humility, recognizing his role in God's process and God's plan is very happy for this to happen. So we see in verse 39, as verse 38, they, some had asked Jesus, where, uh, where are you? Where do you sleep? Where do you live? And he said, come and see. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of John chapter one, come and see. That's a, a phrase that's used again. And he's calling different ones. Here's Andrew. Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter. And then we go out down to verse uh, 45. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, how could he make such a definitive statement in such a short period of time? Go on to verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael 
coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. And Jesus responds in verse 50, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. You see, they were so ready for the anointed one, the deliverer to come. There's something just as simple as Jesus being able to recognize him and Nathaniel saying, I'm sorry, I don't ever remember having met you before. How do you know me? And because Jesus was able to determine who he was at a distance, Nathaniel said, this is, must be the son of God. This must be the Messiah. This must be the king of Israel. They were ready for the Messiah. But what type of Messiah were they expecting at this particular time? In the mid-first century B.C., and we recall that Amos had talked about a time when there would be a famine in the land. A famine not of food or of water, but a famine of the Word of God. And we know that from the time that Malachi laid down the divine pen of inspiration, up until this time we start reading about in the New Testament, that there was no direct message from God. But during that time, people not being satisfied with what God had already revealed in what we refer to as the law of Moses, and because they had not been satisfied with the inspired words of the prophets, many came along and decided, well, again, some said, I'll just go ahead and assume the mantle of the Christ. And some said, we'll just go ahead and we'll start writing books and we'll say they're from God. One of those written in the mid first century BC was called the Psalms of Solomon. No, they weren't written by Solomon but they claimed to be the uh, originators of them, claimed that they were from God. But listen to this. In answer to the question, what type of Messiah were they expecting when Jesus came in the flesh? From the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17. Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, at the time known to you. O God, in order that he may reign over Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. He shall destroy the arrogance of the sinners as a potter's jar. With a rod of iron, he shall shatter all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth. At his rebuke, nations shall flee before him. He shall reprove sinners for the thoughts of their heart. Does that kind of give you an idea what they were expecting in a Messiah? They figured that they were going to regain their power, their physical power as a kingdom. This is what they were expecting. Now we ask the question again, what type of Messiah were they expecting? We go to the scriptures, to the inspired scriptures, and we see back in John chapter 1 where we were just a moment ago when Philip came to Nathanael and said, we found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and in the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Look at Nathaniel's response in verse 46. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? So, what were they expecting? In this case, they were not expecting somebody from Nazareth. And the reason why is because they were bound up in their traditions and their opinions. Folks, when you allow your opinions 
and your man-made traditions to cloud your mind, you can't see the truth. And so it was surprising to Nathaniel. He was automatically ready to, to disregard Jesus as being the Messiah simply because he had lived in Nazareth. Go over to chapter 7 of John in verse 52. John 7 and verse 52. When Nicodemus spoke up regarding Jesus and asked a very simple question, does, in verse 51, does our law judge any man before it hears him and knows what he does? That seems fair enough. A man is innocent until proven guilty, right? Except among the Jewish leadership at this time. They said in verse 52, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They had made up their minds on who and where, who their Messiah was going to be and where he was supposed to be from. Look in verse 27 of John chapter 7. Verse 26 says, Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. So you've got all this discussion going on. Jesus is definitely uh, making a ripple, to say the least, in the environs surrounding Jerusalem and in the city itself. And there's all this discussion about who he is. But because of their opinions and traditions, they don't want to consider that, well, is this the very Christ? And then you go to chapter 1 and verse 6, and even his very own disciples after he had risen from the dead and just before he ascended back to his father's right hand, his very own disciples asked him the question, do you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Opinions and traditions. They had it in their minds that the Messiah was going to come and lead them in a way that would reestablish an earthly power for them. But then we have another group and their thoughts about the kind of Messiah they were expecting. This again is in John chapter 7. Look at verses 41 and 42. Verse 40 says, some said, of a truth he is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Okay, we know the answer to this question. Where was Jesus from? Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem just like Micah. Micah 5 verse 2 predicted he would be, prophesied he would be. So another category of people, when we're talking about what were they expecting of the Messiah, you had those who brought in their opinions and traditions that colored their thoughts about it. But then here you have those who did not take the time, maybe they knew the scriptures, but they did not take the time to look more into the life of Jesus to see if maybe he was the one who was expected. And again, that still exists in 2018. When people make judgments, again, there are still those who let their traditions and their opinions stand in the way of truth. And then there are those who don't want to investigate any further. They've made up their mind and they don't want to dig deeper to learn more about Jesus and about the Father and about his word. But then there's a third category of those who were expecting the Messiah. And that's those who actually knew the scriptures. So you go back to uh, Luke chapter 1 and read about Zechariah, Zechariah, the father of John the Immerser. And of course, here he's speaking by divine inspiration. But here's what was expected of the Messiah based on this Zacharias speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
beginning in verse 68 of Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Go over one chapter to Luke chapter 2, when the baby Jesus was brought to Jerusalem to be presented in the temple. In verse 25, we're introduced to a man named Simeon. And he was told by the Holy Spirit in verse 26 that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed one or Christ or Messiah. And when he saw the baby Jesus, it says he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before all the face of the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of that people Israel. You read a little bit further in verses 36 and 37, you read about a woman named Anna, a prophetess, who also acknowledged that this is the one we've been waiting for. So all those different views of what they were expecting out of a Messiah, and only one of them was correct, and that's the one that is based in the Word of God. So it leads us to another question. The fact that the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, was expected is evident, but how do we or anybody know that Jesus was that particular one? Because again, there were those who claimed to be Messiah. There were those who were told, Jesus said in Matthew 24, there would be false Christs who would come along. So how do we know Jesus was the one? You know, it's not like we go into the gospel accounts and see Jesus uh, going from door to door and going from city to city and saying, hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. He didn't do that, did he? In fact, in just a moment, if you want to be turning to Matthew 16, we're going to look there in just a moment. In fact, when Peter made that great confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responded to him with his blessing, the very next verse in verse 20 of Matthew 16 says, Jesus told them not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. You go over to chapter 17 of Matthew where you read about the transfiguration. And after the transfiguration was complete, Jesus told his disciples not to tell anybody about that vision until he had risen from the dead. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, Jesus healed or was approached by a man who was demon-possessed. And he said, I know who you are. You're the, you're the Holy One of Israel. Jesus said, be quiet. So how do we know that Jesus is the anointed one, the one who is expected? Josh McDowell made this really good point about why didn't Jesus go around just blaring it all over town and all over the countryside that he was the Messiah right from the start. Josh McDowell wrote a book entitled, He Walked Among Us. He said it becomes abundantly clear why Jesus did not go around publicly announcing, I am the Messiah, follow me. The big problem was the Romans. They were completely aware of the popular messianic expectations of the Jewish people. Tacitus, writing at the beginning of the second century AD, reports, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. At about the same time, 
writing about the decade following the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Suetonius wrote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. It's obvious, McDowell says, that the Romans were ready at a minute's notice to squash any messianic uprising. No wonder Jesus did not go around blurting out, I am the Messiah. This is a key phrase. As we will see, he had much more effective ways of making that announcement. And so we go to Matthew 16. And we read about Jesus with his disciples there in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. And he's asking the question, whom do men say that I am? And he's getting various responses. Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response to him was in verse 17, blessed art thou Simon Barjona for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. How did Peter know that Jesus was the anointed one? In this case, it's because he saw his mighty works. Look in Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection of Jesus, just prior to his ascension back to his father's right hand, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, as he has met with those individuals on the road to Emmaus, Verse 27 says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In verse 44, beginning of same chapter, Luke 24, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened ye their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Ye are witnesses of these things. We could go on. There are other passages, but the point I want to make here, how did we know, or how did they know, how do we know that Jesus is the anointed one of God? Well, they knew because they could see it. Peter saw it. But then there's the reference to what had been written by divine inspiration and Jesus being the fulfillment of those things. If you look in Matthew, well, let's first of all reference real quickly John 20, 30, and 31. What what did John say his purpose was in writing his gospel account? He said, there are many other things which Jesus did, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Matthew has something that he did quite frequently by, again, by divine inspiration. It's not unique to Matthew, but Matthew's the one who used this uh, structure most frequently. Uh, It's what's been called over the years, referred to as a formula quotation. And basically it goes something like this, where Matthew would write about something that had been done. For instance, in Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 22, just to give you an example of this. In Matthew 1 and verse 22, verse 21 says, where uh, the angel is speaking to uh, Joseph, verse 21 says, She shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here comes what we refer to as a formula quotation. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And then he goes on and quotes one of the prophets. Again, this is frequent in the gospel according to Matthew making it very clear that this was not accidental. 
that this was God's prophecy and Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus showed himself to be the Messiah through his actions, through his teaching, and through his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So, you know, comes this question. Why doesn't everybody believe that Jesus is the Messiah if it was so evident? You know, sometimes we think it would have been so much easier to convert people to to the Lord back then in the first century. Why they had the miracles, they had all these things going on that we don't have access to today. Folks, a hard heart is a hard heart, no matter what generation exists. Even standing in the presence of the very Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Anointed One, even standing in His very presence, not only did they reject Him, but they murdered Him. A heart that refuses to see the truth, a heart that refuses to open is a heart, no matter the generation, that cannot be brought to the Lord. But here's a key. In John chapter 5, In verses 39 through 47. Jesus is speaking to his Jewish audience. We've just learned earlier in this chapter, by the way, that two times just in this one chapter, they tried to kill him. So beginning in verse 39 of John chapter 5, here's the key about understanding Jesus to be the Messiah, he said, search the scriptures. But notice the rest of that, and this is one of the hindrances. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. What's the difference between what God says and what we think? Sometimes it's miles apart, isn't it? Doesn't matter what I think. It's what God says. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life, but they are those which testify of me. If you would open up your minds and your hearts and go back to the law of Moses and go back to the prophecies, you would see that all those prophecies were pointing to me, Jesus said. But then he goes on. Verse 40, you will not come to me that you may have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you. Are you seeing some keys here to understanding the scriptures, folks? Here we're talking about recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, but let's just talk about some general principles. Can we see what it takes to understand the scriptures? Here's a key phrase, verse 42. I know you have not the love of God in you. Doesn't that seem to be a very elementary principle of understanding the word of God, that we love God and we want to do what he says and we want to know his will? He says, you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you'll receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Watch this one. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? twice already they'd wanted to kill him. Don't you think that intensified a little bit just then? Because they were supposed to be, the leaders were supposed to be masters of the law, right? He said, you don't know the law. 
you don't know what Moses said. If you knew what Moses said, you would recognize me as the fulfillment of his prophecy, of those prophecies. So why don't people acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? Generally, hard-heartedness, opinions, traditions, so on like that. But here's one thing that we see when we come, go back to the New Testament and even still in existence today, and that's this. In my assessment, in my opinion, the biggest hindrance to those who refused and continue to refuse that Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah was and is their belief that the Messiah would not suffer and die. Think about that for a moment. You're in the first century now, which we now refer to as the first century. It wouldn't have been referred to that way then, but think about that. You're, you're there and you think this one has come who's the Messiah and you've got your own concept of the Messiah where he's going to lead you into a great world power again. And he won't even fight back. What kind of leader is that? What kind of powerful king is that? Well, from an earthly standpoint, may not be much of one. From a spiritual standpoint, thank God Almighty that he did that. Because without that sacrifice, where would we be? In Luke chapter 24 again, we were there a little bit early. Let's go back there. Luke 24, 20 through 21. Jesus is interacting with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said, what are you talking about? And they're saying, you know, where have you been? Don't you know what's been happening in Jerusalem? He says, what are you talking about? They said, well, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Verse 20 now says, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we trusted it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So they were cognizant of the, the aspect of the third day that Jesus had said he would rise again, but they hadn't seen him. At least they didn't realize they'd seen him. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 23, Paul talks about the cross. He said to the Jews, it's a stumbling block because their Messiah wasn't supposed to die. I got this many, Will. Okay. Do I hear? Okay. But also in that same passage, it says to the Greeks, this was foolishness that one would rise from the dead. Again, back to McDowell's book, He Walked Among Us. He said, for more than 1,700 years, the Jewish rabbis interpreted Isaiah 53, that well-known prophecy about the suffering Messiah. For more than 1,700 years, the Jewish rabbis interpreted Isaiah 53 almost unanimously as referring to the Messiah. Not until the 12th century A.D., no doubt under the suffering of Jews at the hands of the Crusaders, did any Jewish interpreter say that Isaiah 53 refers to the whole nation of Israel, which is what's commonly believed by Judaism today. I've got other quotes here. They just substantiate what I just said. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 16, when he's talking about those who refuse to accept Jesus, acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, based on their views of the old covenant, the law of Moses, he said the veil is on their hearts. When they take the veil away, they'll see. But they've got their own concepts of how their Messiah was supposed to be, and they refuse to quit. 
They refused to give that up. That was the problem then. That is the problem now. Jesus' response in John, excuse me, Luke 24, 25, and 26, to these disciples, he said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Which leads to the next point. The fact that it was clearly in the Father's plan that the anointed one would suffer and die for the sins of humanity. This was not an accident. One facet of premillennialism says that God sent Jesus into the world to establish his kingdom on earth. That he was rejected by those he came to bring into his kingdom. And as a result of that, God changed his mind, made an emergency plan and set up the church instead. It was intended for the Messiah to die. It's clear in the scriptures, Psalm 22 and very, very other ones as well. Jesus himself in Matthew 16, 22. And what's interesting is, and rather ironic in a way, is that on the heels of Jesus saying that he was going to be killed, we remember that Peter spoke up and said, no, it's not going to happen. And yet, some weeks later, it was Peter himself in Acts 2, 22 through 24 saying that God, by determinate hands, delivered him for you. So let's quickly wrap up. Why was it necessary for the Father to send the Anointed One? We know the Anointed One, the Christ, was expected. The Messiah was expected. We've pointed out Jesus proved himself to be the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. We also pointed out that it was in the Father's plan the Anointed One would suffer and die for the sins of humanity. Why was it necessary? Just recapping some of the scriptures we've already looked at. The Messiah was anointed or chosen to redeem, to save, to show mercy, to fulfill the promise to Abraham that in his seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. The Messiah was chosen to deliver. The anointed one was chosen to console and to comfort. He was chosen to bring light to the Gentiles. So why do we need the anointed one? And the answer is because we can't we can't do any of those things for ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't bring light. It can only be done through Jesus. As the anointed one, Jesus had a mission. He was determined to see it through. That mission, Luke 19 and verse 10, was to seek and to save that which was lost. In order to do that, he would have to overcome temptation and live perfectly. Have you ever thought about how hard that must have been? And how hard it would be for us? I mean, on a daily basis, how we're bombarded with temptation. And yet Jesus overcame all of them. To fulfill his mission as the anointed one, he would need to endure the mocking and taunting of those he came to redeem. He would need to willingly go to his death as a lamb to the slaughter. He would need to finish the work that his father had given him to do. And how did he do it? Well, let's finish up with this in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, who for the joy... 
that was said before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked beyond the cross and looked at what would result because of his sacrifice. Have you ever considered how the Bible uses that determination of the Messiah to encourage us as Christians to be just as determined. Here in Hebrews 12 and verse 3, talking to brethren who were themselves wanting to give up, he says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be worried and faint in your own minds. Look how Jesus refused to quit. When all of mankind had turned their backs on him, When even hanging from the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet he refused to call even a single angel to relieve him and take him down from the cross. He is given to us, in this case, as our example. To follow, to be determined, to never quit. Because of the anointed one, And because he finished his work, which he came to do, because of the anointed one, you and I can be chosen ones. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thank you for your good attention.